All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's your favorite woman of worth, whatever that means. <laughs> I got a woo. Uh, no, it is. It is. Uh, it's good to be with you guys. If you hadn't heard already like five times, my name's Tyler Eaton. Uh, and uh, I'm excited to, to be here this morning as we jump back into our Genesis uh, teaching series. We took the last month off for Practical Love, which was amazing, just hearing uh, about all of our global and community ministry partners and just how uh, generous our faith family is stepping in yet again to some uh, great opportunities where we literally just get to show the love of Jesus in practical ways, both in our backyard as well as all around uh, the world. But today we're, we're jumping back into Genesis chapter three. And so after being off for a month, I feel like we need to do a little bit of a recap because we're kind of coming in hot halfway through chapter three. And so whether you are familiar with the beginning of God's story uh, or you are just kind of jumping in for the first time, uh, want to give just a little bit of a recap so that way we're all on the same page as we uh, jump in this morning. But before we do that, let's pray and just ask that God would speak to us, even if this is a story and a text that we might be excuse me, very familiar with. Uh, may the Holy Spirit reveal new things to us today because the word of God is, uh, it is living and it is something that we can learn something from new each and every time when we approach it with that uh, place of mind. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning. We're reminded as we, we look at the text today that from the very beginning of time, you walked with your people. As we're gonna see today, as you walked through the garden and met Adam and Eve where they were at, your desire is to be in relationship with your children. And so my prayers for the people in this room today and watching online, uh, Lord, wherever we may be in our life, you meet us where we're at. So thank you for walking with us. Thank you for pursuing us. I pray today that we would see you in a new way. We pray this in your name, amen. So for, for many years, we, uh, in the student ministries, uh, we would teach the story of God to our students in a way that we would kind of simplify it if they were to pick up their Bible and explain to somebody from Genesis to Revelation, what is the story of God? We would say, well, there's six C's. We would start with creation, which Bill and Aaron talked about in the month of January, which God created everything, it was perfect, and he said it was good. And then from creation, we move into crisis, and that's kind of what we're gonna be focusing on the second half today. Pastor Bill talked about this in the end of January, where mankind decided that they could be God themselves, not just be like God as image bearers, but they themselves gave in to temptation and thought they could be gods themselves, and so entered uh, really a spiritual, physical, and emotional death, and not just between mankind and their creator, but also relationships between animals between uh, the earth and things like that. And we're gonna see that kind of flesh out a little more today as God has some really blunt uh, conversations with his creation. And then after crisis, we go into conversations and really from Genesis three to the end of the Old Testament, we are filled with conversations where God is having people, whether it be prophets, priests, or kings, conveying the message of a future hope of a Messiah. And so in the first 
basically two, two and a half chapters. We get through creation, crisis, and conversations. And so we're gonna see that conversation take place today. And so when we approach this, we need to be reminded of some things about God. And so the questions we always wanna ask ourselves when we approach scripture is, who is God? What has he done? Who am I? And what's my response? And so on the screen, just to kind of get everyone kind of caught up to speed, here, here's where we're at this morning in, this, in the text that we're gonna be looking at. God is the creator and provider of all things. God created man and woman in his image so that he could be like himself. And actually we see some of the text talk about uh, that they are like us. We see this first picture of the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God gives purpose and responsibilities to humans so to rule and subdue creation, whether it's the birds in the sky, the fish of the sea, the creatures on the land, God also told them that they are to go and to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And all of these things are gonna come into play here in a little bit too uh, as we go on in the text. But we also see that God is good and he sets limits for his own good. He said, in the garden, you have access to everything and anything except for one tree. If you eat from this tree, you will die. Which begs the question, when you live in paradise and everything is perfect and you're told that there is death, what is one's concept of death? Have you ever thought about that? Like usually like when we know like there's a severe consequence with something, like, don't touch that, that's hot. I get that, I'm not gonna touch it because I'm not gonna burn myself because I've done that before and so I can pull that out of my memory. But if you have no concept of death, what, what, what are the implications of that? Then we see that God is the lawgiver and he is the judge. And, and it's so important that we see that, yes, God is love, God is compassionate, and he pursues us, and he is consistent in that, but he is also just. He upholds the law, and he makes sure that there is a standard, and that standard is perfection. And when there is sin, there can be no uh, relationship there. There is a division in the midst of that. And so the lie from the beginning of time is that there are no consequences for our sins. That's what Adam and Eve believed in. And so that is how they lived out their lives. And so when we look at Adam and Eve on one hand, it's like the, the, the masterpiece of God's creation. He, he held them above everything else he created, above the angels, above the plants, above the animals, because they were created, we were created as image bearers that we would be God like the Elohim, the Hebrew word for Old Testament, the God, that we would show his character qualities and that we would live those out and reflect that in our day-to-day -day life. But yet at the same time, we were this prized creation and on display, we were also the biggest disappointment in some ways because we believed that there was something better out there and that we wanted to exchange God's goodness for our own control so that we could be gods of ourselves, and we thought that there wouldn't be any consequences for that. So see, faith in God's truth always leads to victory, but faith in Satan's lies will always lead to defeat. And what's interesting here in chapter three, when the serpent, Satan, comes on the scene and starts to like woo them in to do the one thing that God asked them not to do, there's no fear there. They have no reason to fear the serpent. It wasn't until actually they fell into the temptation and they realized that they crossed the line that they can no longer repair that all of a sudden that they realized, hey, the serpent is not of God. And so for those of you 
who grew up in the, the Oregon area, you might, you might remember this story. It was in the newspaper. It's actually in several uh, publications. Uh, but back in the 50s, uh, there was a little boy, I think he was three years old at the time, playing outside, and all of a sudden, mom's inside, hears all this screaming. They run outside, and this boy, he's just sitting there screaming, crying, covered in blood. And they're like, oh my gosh, what happened? The wives of the neighbors, they run out, they're picking him up. They're like, call 911 or the ambulance, get the, the anti-rabies serum. Like, we gotta make sure. And so they scoop up this little boy, they bring him inside and they clean him all up and everything. And there's no broken skin, maybe a contusion on the ankle, but nothing. And they're like, what, what happened? And he calmed down and he said, the dog, he took my cookie. And so I bit it. And I know this story because that story was my dad. And I actually have a copy of the article. Let's put that up there. <laughs> Cookie lost boy chews on dog tail. Uh, my dad doesn't know I'm telling this story. So if you see him and he has a donut in his hand today, don't take the donut. I can't <laughs> promise that he'll lash out at you. But isn't it that the way too? Like when we see things that are comfortable in our lives and we're not looking and being guarded and things come in, sin can sneak in and take the most prized way. Now, this, this analogy breaks down quickly theologically, so we're not gonna continue. Aaron Dorr was like, well, your dad's heel, isn't that like the, the crushing of the snake? Like, no, we're not gonna go that far into this analogy. But if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis 3, verse eight through 13, and we're gonna see while this thing was stolen from humanity, even at their own hands and feet, God still shows up. So here we are in Genesis chapter eight, sorry, verse three, chapter three, verse eight through 13. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. And so they hid from the Lord among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied. He replied, I heard you walking in the garden. So I hid, I was afraid because I was naked. Well, who told you that you were naked? The Lord asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. And the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? Well, the serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. So a lot of things just happened in here. But what I want us to focus on here is when God showed up, his question was, where are you? God knew. He wasn't like sitting there coming in hot and heavy. Like, you know, maybe if you're a parent, you, you can relate to this. I know I can, where you walk in and, you know, you have one of your kids crying because the other sibling did something or you walk into the mess of a living room that you just cleaned up. Your reaction isn't to go upstairs and find them and sit down, tell me about your day. How are you doing? No, it's like, no, you yell for their name, get down here, what happened, right? I mean, God is also the creator of like, all the things and all power. I mean, he could have just like parted the creation and like separated the bushes to reveal Adam and Eve right there, right? And be like, there you are, come to me. But no, we see this, this heart of God saying, where are you? And he wants to seek that relationship with his creation. And rather than approaching their heavenly father from a, a, a posture of confession, they quickly go into the blame game. And what's interesting, not only does Adam blame Eve, he blames God. 
He's like, well, it's your fault, God. You gave me this woman and she's the one that gave it to me. Eve's watching this. He's like, oh, the blame game works here? Okay, well, it wasn't me, God. It was the serpent. They're just deflecting left and right, trying to see if God's wrath will go to the snake because really it's the snake's fault. They're not taking responsibility. They're not confessing. And God's just kind of watching this all play out. Adam responded with language really of fear and sorrow and not confusion. And he puts full responsibility uh, on everything else. And what's so interesting, this is really an inversion of Genesis chapter one, where God commanded humanity to rule and subdue creation. And what we saw here is in, in the moment of weakness is that really creation subdued humanity. And so we see this inversion of God's plan already taking place because of sin. And so as God's talking to Adam and they're having this conversation, uh, God sits there and he's listening to this and he turns to the serpent in Genesis 3, 14, and it says this. It says, then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. Now, this first part of a two-verse uh, really pronouncement to the serpent is interesting because the first half in verse 14, we're gonna see he's talking to him as a creature, as a snake, as a serpent. But in verse 15, we see him address the serpent as Satan. So here in verse 14, he's saying to them, like there, there's just gonna be so many things that are gonna happen to you now because of this. I'm cursing you that above all other creation, you are gonna be like feared, you are gonna be cursed more than anything else and you are gonna crawl on your belly. And it's not gonna be that, well, were snakes walking before creation? Like, what, is, what does that mean? It's like, no, when, when a snake is upright, it's usually because it's either in a defensive posture or an attacking posture. And so being cursed to its belly, he's, he's, he's cursing it against the, the innate nature of this creature. That's like, no, like you have no power over this. Uh, that rather you are gonna be cursed to the ground. And this dust thing isn't so much its diet, what it's gonna be eating, but it's talking about back then, you know, when they were writing Genesis to the Old Testament audience, they were talking about, you know, the, the dead and the corpses and the dust that would collect in their nostrils and their mouths as they're decaying. It's like, that's, that's the dust that you're gonna be seeing. There's gonna be death in your future. Like, you are not gonna be a, a glorified creature throughout creation. No one is gonna like you. No one's gonna uh, uh, have an appealing draw towards you naturally. And so that's why more than any other beast of the field, you are gonna be cursed. And if you go into history, you'll see in ancient Egypt, more than anything else, that there are, uh, whether it's uh, not idolatries, but like statues, they were, they were revered as, as uh, serpents of power, of sorcery, uh, of evil. And so they, they would create these graven, uh, sorry, engraven uh, statues of snakes to show power and authority. And so in sorcerers and magicians back then, like in Pharaoh, uh, they really would idolize themselves after this stuff. Uh, but what's interesting here is the prophet Isaiah gives a glimpse of a future heaven, the new Jerusalem. And here's what it says here in 65 verse 25. It says, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat hay like a cow, we're seeing the picture of what was broken being brought back together into its perfected pre-fall state. But the prophet then says this, but the snakes will eat dust. In those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so this is really an eternal curse 
placed upon the snake, cursed upon Satan in this. And so let's continue in verse 315. It says, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So now what, what we're seeing here, we're seeing here really, if you're not familiar with uh, prophecies in the in Old Testament, this is the first time we see the foretelling of the Messiah. And so I said that first passage talking about just how you are cursed above all other creatures, that's, that's talking about the snake. Now we're seeing him address the serpent as Satan. And so when he says here that the offspring is gonna strike your head and you will strike his heel, what we're seeing here is this first thing, what they're calling it, the first gospel is proto-evangelium, which means the first presentation of the good news. And what God is laying out here, he hasn't even gotten to woman and man and the land, and we're gonna see that in a second, of the curse and what's gonna happen, but he's saying in the midst of this catastrophic failure and sin nature now being a reality, there's going to be hope that I'm gonna send someone through the woman that one day your seed, Satan, might think you have a victory, but really her seed is gonna crush your head, the snake crusher, the snake defeater. This can come and have victory over you. And the seed that we see here is the same seed that we use in Hebrew when we talk about Jacob, uh, Abraham, talking about his descendants, going through Moses, going through David, because it's the same seed if you follow any of the genealogy in the Old Testament that takes us to the fulfillment of Jesus's arrival in the Gospels. And so when we look at here, this idea of the fall, and yet we have the promise, is that we are all born outside of Eden. Our natures, our inclinations, our thoughts, everything is conformed really as an outsider status into our broken nature, which is really hard sometimes for us to believe. Because this Friday, my, my oldest daughter, Nora, turned 12, and so thanks to Google Photos, they bring back all the memories of the pictures and stuff, and you sit there, and I can remember those moments when, when you hold your child and they're minutes, if not you know, hours old, and you sit there and you look at them and you're like, this is the picture of perfection. This is the picture of unfiltered beauty. And yet I know because of sin that this precious life is gonna fall short. And so when we look around and we ask the questions, why does God allow bad things to good people the reality is in God's standards, there are no good people. And scripture lays that out to God's standard. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And there are consequences for falling short of God's standard. But yet God does not leave us there. And that's why he said that there will come a day where all the wrongs will be made right. You see, conviction of our sin pulls us towards God while shame pulls us away. And so God, when he was pursuing Adam and Eve, they were hiding. They weren't just hiding, but the passage before that, they talked about that they had uh, made figs to cover their nakedness because once they ate and they realized that they were naked and they experienced shame, they, 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 they hid themselves. And so when they heard the voice of God, that wasn't enough covering, and so they went and they had to hide in the bushes so they were completely hidden from God. 
And yet I think sometimes I look at that and if we're to use that as an example or as a metaphor to us, I think so often we try to put our own figs together to really look good, our exterior shell in our walk with Jesus. I think sometimes we even do our exterior shell and we try to figure out, well, if I just look good enough, if I just serve enough, if I just give enough, if I just do enough, you know, other people will think that I have my life together. But God sees the heart, not our actions. And so when we go back into that verse, it says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman. Those two seeds, he's saying, between now and the end of time, when Jesus comes, there's gonna be hostility between the evil one, the prince of darkness, and the bride of Christ, his church. But I'm gonna equip the church. I'm gonna empower the church with my spirit so that when that church, as Jesus told his disciples, I'm gonna build my church upon this rock and the power of hell will not prevail against the church. That as hard as our culture is and as hard as our lives can be and the things that are thrown at us, things that we feel like that we can have influence over and the things we feel like we don't have influence over, God's church is the tool that he uses to combat the evil one. And so this isn't going away. It's not like once we win a culture war or once we overcome a hardship, all of a sudden we're in smooth sailing to the finish line. We are at war with things that are unseen, that are not flesh and blood in this world. And until Jesus comes and rectifies that, we are called to be on guard. And so we see this now as New Testament readers, as we look back at this text and where we are now, what Jesus did on the cross, we can say that the wounding of Christ through Satan's hostility was transformed and rectified by the crushing of Satan through Christ's humility. And so here we see that first reference of the plan of God to save his fallen sinners. And yet he declares his commitment to his creation that I will not abandon you. And I feel like sometimes we can believe that lie. As I said, that there's a difference between feeling convicted and there's a difference between feeling shame. The enemy, the serpent, wants us to feel shame, which pulls us from paradise, pulls us from the garden, pulls us from that relationship with God. And we believe the lie that God has abandoned me. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. And so if you are here today, and you feel that God has abandoned you because of something that you are currently going through or that you have gone through, that is not true. That is not true. God is walking with us. He's calling out to you, where are you? So then he gets to the, to the woman. He says to the woman in verse 16, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and the pain will give you birth Sorry, and in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. What's so interesting is that the blessing that Jesus gave, sorry, Jesus, God the Father gave his creation was that wanting to be fruitful and to, and to multiply and to procreate. There is joy, there is enjoyment there, there's intimacy in that, and this is good. This is how I intended it to be. This is what I created. But yet, through that blessing now, there is a curse. There is gonna be pain in that childbearing. And there's two words that are used there really quick that I wanna to touch on, and that's pain uh, and <clears throat> desire. The pain that is being used there, the Hebrew word, is not about uh, physical pain. 
But really the pain that it is talking about really is that for psychological or mental pain. And with that pain can come physical pain, but it's not targeting that exclusively. So when you think about the anxiety that a woman will experience through the whole process from conception to birth, it is talking about that pain. Anxiety about whether or not I can conceive. Uh, anxiety that comes from the discomfort of pregnancy. Dis- uh, anxiety about the health of my baby, of my child that I'm carrying. Anxiety if, if the child or my mom, uh, if the mother, the, the, the woman will even survive the, the birth process. There's a lot of anxiety in there. And so maybe another way of looking at this verse is saying, I will greatly increase the anguish you will experience in the birth process from anxiety surrounding conception to the strenuous work of giving birth. And then we have this work of desire. And this word desire is only used two other times as far as the root word, how it's used in this version of chapter three in Genesis. It's used in chapter four when it's talking about Cain and Abel and sin having dominance over uh, one person's nature, talking about Cain and Abel. And then we see it again in Song of Solomon where really it's more of that sexual desire, that intimacy between a woman and her lover. And so when you look at words in scripture, you look at the the synchronic data of it. And since it's only used these two other times, we can't ignore the, the sexual nature of it. And yet we can't ignore the dominance side of it. And so what, how do we rectify these, these two contrasting means of the word desire? So perhaps it's referring to the basic instinct, meaning uh, that the woman and her desire to have children, desiring her husband, control over her husband, she's recognizing reproduction cannot happen without the other half. Followed by in chapter seeing that, that, that in order for the, the procreation to happen, well, it takes, it takes two, right? And so there's that desire and that longing, both in intimacy, but also I want to fulfill the duty of what God has commanded me to do as a woman. Back then, pre-fall, right? And so when we look at this too, chapter one, in chapter two, we see man's need for a woman, when God said it's not good for a man to be alone. So here's this, this azer, this helper, this, this azer warrior that I'm giving to you to be a partner uh, in, in, in mutual submission to each other. And then likewise, we see in chapter three, women's need for man and having that desire over that. So then when we get to Genesis 17 to 19, all this time, Adam as we're standing by watching. Because first he blamed God, he blamed the woman, and then he stepped back and watched God's curses on the serpent and the woman. And maybe Adam just thinks like, I'm, I'm gonna get out of this. This isn't my fault, my hands are clean. And Adam, it says, uh, well, Adam doesn't say anything. He just listens now because here's what God says to Adam. He says, and to the man, he says, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. Time out. If you were not here when Pastor Bill taught on this passage in the first part of chapter three, Adam was standing right next to his wife when this happened. So it wasn't like, it was like the sin of omission where it was like Eve did this, took the fruit, you know, a couple hours later in the day, here, try this kind of a thing. Like Adam was like right there. And so yes, maybe Eve took the first bite. Adam is equally responsible for what took place there. And so don't, don't think that, guys, we're off the hook on this, okay? Like we, we were there in the garden as far as Adam being our representative. So 
We keep going on, it says, all your life you are now gonna struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat its grains by the sweat of your brow, and you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from the dust, and to the dust you will return. And that's the same dust talking about the serpent earlier, that death, that that is your future. And so when we look at this thing up until this point, like we're saying, Adam didn't know what was gonna be the ramifications of all this. And so what does it mean for the ground to be cursed? Because the word cursed here uh, is the exact opposite of the word blessed. And so the best way to put this in our human language that we would um, uh, understand this would really would be the word damn, damnation. That something is cursed, if something is damned, you are pulling it out from underneath the blessing of God. You're pulling out from under the favor of God. And there is an eternal reality of that damnation. And it's not just the ground that is being damned, but so is our relationship that has been broken because of sin of falling short and meeting that standard. That is an eternal reality for those who do not profess that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He says, no one can come to the Father except through me. I don't care how impressive your figs are, how good your coverings are. Nothing is good enough. So we're looking at this idea of someone being putting under God's protection and favor has now been removed. And there's anguish in that painful toil that we saw in Eve's curse that we're now seeing in our relationship with creation and with the land and how we're gonna provide and all the sustenance things that we need to live life. So then we get to Genesis 3, verses 20 through 21. Then the man Adam named his wife Eve. So this is where she is given her name, Eve, because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins from Adam and his wife. What's interesting here is God did not tell Adam to name his wife Eve. But Adam picked that name. And I think he picked that name because in the midst of all that, I know I was kind of joking around that he was maybe just kind of being you know, absent-minded and just listening to the other curses. But I think in that moment, Adam heard that through his wife's seed, there was gonna be a Messiah. That there was hope. And so he was connecting to the promise. That in the midst of the fallen nature of everything, there was gonna be a way out of this. And so through his wife Eve, there was going to be the promised one. We also see the first time in the garden, a sacrifice being made. And a sacrifice that we're seeing being made of these animal skins, it's an innocent life for some guilty lives. And really this is the beginning of what we see throughout the Old Testament, the, the practice of sacrifices, both as a way of worship, but also a way of atoning ourselves of sins and purification. Because throughout the Old Testament, sin is seen as through the lens of this dishonors God. Sin separates us from our creator. And so when we see that there needs to be an atonement for the sin, that they would take animals normally and uh, the practice that it would be a lamb, a spotless lamb that was unblemished. Take an innocent life for the guilty one. Life had to be given so that life could be preserved. 
So that's why when we see in the New Testament, in the Gospels, when Jesus is starting his earthly ministry and he sees John the Baptist, John the Baptist says, behold, here is the Lamb of God. He's connecting to the Israelites and to the Jewish people of all the prophecies in the Old Testament that they know that they would make the connection. Behold, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Only Jesus can cover the sins of humanity, not our own works, because Jesus does for us which what we cannot do for ourselves. I don't have these verses on the screen, but if you're taking notes, you want to write it down, I'll read them to you. But 1 John 4, 9 through 10, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. And then the last passage here through the end of chapter three uh, says this. It says, then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us. We saw that again in Genesis one when he created humanity. Let's make, make them like us in our image. We're seeing this picture of the Trinity again here. Knowing both good and evil, what if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And after sending them out, the Lord God stationed a mighty cherubim to the east of the garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. I don't know about you, but when I've read this passage before, uh, at least growing up, I always thought when they would eat the fruit, they would die all uh, like Snow White. You know, you eat the apple, you die right there in the garden. But perhaps what God is saying is that when you opened up their eyes and they realize they have sinned, and at that moment, their bodies begin decaying and to begin falling apart, that God pulling them out of the garden and keeping access away from the tree was a gift of mercy and grace to them that they would not suffer and so he sent them out and saying, I'm gonna send you out of here because one, you can't be in here because of your sin. But second of all, I'm gonna give you this lamb covering, this animal skin covering that's gonna cover your shame, both metaphorically and also just the shame that you feel physically in the presence of being around other people now. Until one day when I'm gonna send another sacrifice that is gonna cover all the sins of the world, not just for you, but for all your descendants, all your seeds, between the woman's seeds as they continuously combat against the seed of the serpent until Jesus comes at the end. So this sentence is, is passed. There's banishment from the garden. There's banishment of access to the tree of life. Death is inevitable. And God told man that you, you can't stay here anymore. And what's interesting here too, also Adam and Eve were responsible for keeping the garden in chapter two. And now the responsibility of keeping the garden has been given uh, to the cherubim, which is the same verb that they used. So the responsibilities now of ruling over the garden has now been passed from man back to the cherubim. So when we look at this today, it's one of those things where it's like, it's a lot of head knowledge. I get it. Don't do this. They did it, cause and effect, there's consequences. And I feel like so often we can, 
read this text and be like, I get it intellectually. But yet I still can believe the lie that one, are there really consequences for my sins? Are there really consequences for my doubts? Are there really consequences for just living a good life apart from Jesus? And the answer is yes. And so it's really easy sometimes for us to come to church. And we sing songs, we listen to a message, we go to community groups, we do these things, right? And we can get narrow-minded and internally focused and we can lose perspective that there is a war out there. And that Jesus is coming back. And that there are lost people out there who have not experienced the hope When Jesus calls out to them in the garden, where are you? They are ignoring that voice. And perhaps their only tangible expression of Jesus is found in their relationship with you, with us. So how are we living out the gospel in our own life? As a seed of Eve, as a descendant from that humanity, Paul says in the New Testament in Romans 16, 19, that the church, that the God of peace, and this is really the only time we see in the New Testament the reference of the crushing of the snake's head. We know that Jesus did it when he said it is finished on the cross, but as far as the words crushing the head of Satan, we only see it in Romans 16, 19, where it says, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath their feet. And their feet being us, the bride of Christ, when we submit ourselves to the work of the cross and what Jesus did. And so when we we look at this, uh, there is a second Adam. Paul talks about this. The first Adam that we were just talking about this morning, you know, a lot of things went wrong. But in the New Testament, in Romans 3, And in Romans 5, that I'm going to read to you, um, we see that Jesus is called the second Adam, the last Adam. And so we see this continuity coming to completion through God's plan. So starting in chapter 3, 23 through 26, it says this, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. The sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. And then when we jump over to Romans 5, starting in verse 12, when Adam's sin entered, when Adam's sin, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone's sin. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, and even those who did not disobey an explicit command of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who is yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace. 
and his gift of forgiveness to many through the other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God. Even though we are guilty of many sins, for the sin of this one man, Adam caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. I wanna read that last verse one more time. He says this, it says, for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin. Sin does not define us. Jesus defines us. God defines us as image bearers. Whatever you have done, whatever guilt or shame that you feel like you are carrying around today, it does not inhibit you from receiving the free gift of God. Yes, Adam's sin brings condemnation, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right and real relationship with God. And so as we wrap up today, that question again, God asked Adam and Eve, and he's, he's asking us is, where are you? Where are you today? Maybe right now you are just feeling that you are so close to God in your walk right now, and that relationship is great. And so you're praying that God would just continue to strengthen and protect that relationship. Maybe for some of you, you feel like you're walking through that valley of shadow of death, and you're walking through that alone, and you feel like you are alone, that God's abandoned you. Or the sins that have stacked up against you have now defined you, and there's no way to remove that. Well, if we believe that scripture is true, then we know that that is a lie and that God's free gift is for everyone. So what's keeping you back? And I think it's this, confession. Confession is powerful. We don't confess our sins because that gives us forgiveness. God is all-knowing. But when we confess our sins, we are telling our sins it no longer has power over us because the cross paid for it all. So confession is something that we should be doing regularly in our time of prayer with the Lord. And I wanna challenge you this too, and I'm challenging this to myself too, because I've seen the ugliness of the weeds of half-hearted confession in my own life. Perhaps there's relationships in your life and you've confessed those sins, feelings of anger, feelings of hurt, feelings of betrayal or whatever. And so you're like, God, just help my heart to soften towards fill in the blank. And you leave it there. But then when you see that person the next time, or you think of that incident that happens, what happens? It comes right back. Sometimes confessing our sin and confessing our feelings and our struggles means going to that person in the same way we're going to our Heavenly Father. 
there is freedom in confession. I don't think if Adam confessed in that moment that that would have changed anything necessarily as far as our sin nature. They sinned. There needed to be reparations for that. But I think Adam missed out on a really neat encounter with his father that day in the garden. And I don't want to miss out on that opportunity with my heavenly father. So today we're going to spend a time of confession and response to that free gift. And so if you're here this morning or you're watching online and, and, and that's something that you want to do, I'm, I'm just going to lead us through a time. We do this every Sunday. And the reason we do this every Sunday is because the kingdom of God is advancing. And every Sunday is someone's first Sunday at church. So we always want to give an opportunity for people to respond to the gospel. So will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, would you search our hearts this morning and reveal the things in us that are not of you. Rather than isolating ourselves in sin and shame, Heavenly Father, we want to draw near to you. And if we've never done that before, then God, I just, I confess that I am fallen short of the standard of perfection. Not just in the world's economy, but in yours. And there is nothing I can do to repair that. So today I'm asking and I'm receiving that gift that I do not deserve and yet you give so freely because of your immense love and mercy and grace. So Jesus, I confess my sins to you. I wanna surrender my life this moment to you that you would change the trajectory of my life and that you would free me from the sin and the guilt and the chains that have shackled me back for far too long. May today be the day I look back upon and remember the day that I took a step in faith. So Lord, we love you. Thank you. Thank you that you pursue us. Thank you in our darkest moment of the history of humanity. You did not give up on us when you could have just wiped us out. You loved us. And may we take this gift and be conduits of your love, hope, and grace to a world so desperately in need. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer or if you have questions something about this passage or just the Holy Spirit just tugging on your heart this morning. Afterwards, out in the atrium, we have volunteers that would love, they just love to hear your story. 
and see how we as a faith family can come around and be a support for you. We're also gonna have people down front, part of our prayer team too, that's here every Sunday that would love to pray and meet with you too. And if you're online, you can go to rollinghills.org slash next steps and we'll connect with you this week as well. But for now, as we uh, continue in the spirit of worship, uh, let's sing together.